IT and cybersecurity employees at the Veterans Affairs Department will get long-awaited pay raises. The VA's special salary rate for its IT workforce starts this month. It'll raise the base salaries of more than 7,000 employees. VA led a coalition of agencies last year to implement the special salaries government-wide, but few agencies have moved ahead. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with VA's Assistant Secretary for IT, Kurt Delbeni. We've been working on this thing for a long time. There's complexity just in terms of talking with OPM and the other parts of the federal government to get it worked out. PACT Act does help us tremendously. I mean, if you think about all the things the PACT Act does, you can lose track of the fact that, hey, it allowed us to create a more competitive workforce so that we can hire great people, and that will accrue benefits to uh, the PACT Act as a result. We've been working hard on it. We believe we're going to roll it out this month. So that is the goal, is to roll it out to employees this month in July. And so it's, as I said, it's the culmination of a lot of work from a lot of teams. I do want to step back and say the kind of pillars of the transformation that we've been talking about, thinking of your workforce, investing your workforce, thinking of them as a critical part of your success. And that means creating careers that are meaningful, that allow you to to support your family, that allow you to progress to greater and greater responsibilities and rewards over a period of time. And if you buy the premise of how IT has to change, and if you buy the premise that it needs to move towards this more of a product orientation, a vision orientation connected with a rigorous roadmap, then the value proposition to employees is that we are building skilled people who know how to do that. Part of that, the deal has to be good. Part of the deal is we're going to be this place where you learn that skill and execute it at a very high degree of precision. But at the same time, if it doesn't pay well, it's like, I'd love to go there, but I can't, you know, I have to support my family and I, I have obligations in my life and I'd like to take a vacation every once in a while. You need to make the value work overall. And so SSR fits into that piece of a broader value proposition for employees that we need to make great if we're going to get great employees. Part of it is is creating that ladder for their career progression over time as well. So I guess stepping back, I just say it's a holistic approach around people excellence, around making sure that people are our greatest assets and making sure it's a good deal for them. And just to follow up on that, I am a little curious why the VA is going through the PACT Act to implement this. I know that things have been a little more, I guess, slow going with OPM doing this more government wide. But can you specify a little bit more about why PACT Act is the vehicle of choice for these higher rates to go into effect? I don't want to speak for the rest of the federal government. There are people that you can speak to in OPM and get the better, a more holistic view of how they see it. I know we have been involved. And as you know, we've been kind of one of the lead dogs in trying to push this over the finish line. But there's a lot of complexities if you think about moving the entire federal government to an SSR for tech positions. And I think we saw the special accommodations, the PACT Act, concluded that this is a way for us to fast track that for the VA in particular. It was married with dollars that we were able to, you know, most of it is investing out of our core HR dollars, but also we're going to be making this bigger investment in our systems. That's a ripe time when we need to actually marry it with dollars for our employees' salaries that are increased as well. And so as the PACT Act came along, it gave us that opportunity to be able to do things that are more at a faster pace while OPM and the rest of the government figures out for the broader initiative what they want to do. Do you see that implementation of VA might be a good way to show other agencies the value proposition of doing that? Do you see that as kind of an optimistic way of get the ball rolling more effectively at other agencies? 
I hope so. We didn't just pull these numbers out of a hat and say, oh, we'd like to pay our employees more, so we're going to do that. We did a study to look at what the pay was in the commercial side and what is in the government. We figured out at each layer, each stage in your progression or in your career progression, what are the relative salaries? The first and foremost thing we did is built the case for what we need to do to have competitive pay. We have already really kind of redoubled in recruiting folks to the VA. We're getting really clear in terms of the value proposition, in terms of the mission, which is a sacred mission that really differentiates us. But I think we're already having success in terms of being able to hire people from the outside. And I think this will redouble that success. And I think other agencies will see it. And my hope is that they'll follow suit, that they can work with the OPM. And we will certainly support the OPM, certainly support the other administrations in helping get this passed as a broad federal-wide opportunity. It's a challenging time, though, in terms of budgets and everything, and that'll have to weigh into it as well. Absolutely. To look at this another way, you know, of course, the, the SSR is a great way to put the help wanted sign out and let people know that the VA OIT, it's interested in growing, it's interested in bringing people on board. In terms of like hiring goals you guys have for the year, the next two years, do you guys have a ballpark estimate of any kind of metrics you guys are looking to hit? Well, we'd like to get to 100% of our open heads are filled. We've made really good progress. We still got a ways to go there. And they're across the entire part of our organization. We get rotation and people moving for other jobs too. And so when you're talking about an organization as, as large as OIT, there's always a background demand for new employees. We'd like to bring people on that have really strong technical skills. This is not a sprint. You do this and you transform your hiring and you keep doing it and doing it, doing it. And at the same time, you want to create the tools internally so that employees that are already in place, that have already joined this mission, see that career opportunity for them as well. We've been focusing a little bit of the conversation here about bringing people in. But of course, you know, another element to things is getting people to stay. Part of what VA OIT is looking at here is some career pathing helping employees identify that next step for them. Uh, can you help me understand a little bit more about what the goals of all of this is and, and kind of what the next steps are? The first thing is I'll emphasize again, it's about the whole package. And so people need to come to and, and have competitive pay here. But then the second thing is either if I start my career in the VA, my technical career in the VA and move up, or whether I come in a mid-level and move up from there, people expect to be promoted over a period of time, to be given more and more interesting and complex problems over time. But it's not as if they come with this preconceived notion of what their career should look like. It has to adapt to the organization and the mission of the organization. So any place you go, the, ex the expectation ought to be, I come enthusiastically wanting to use my skills. You're gonna tell me, one, what are the expectations of the current job? And how do I get to that next step in my career? What should my expectations be, both in terms of what I do and what it means for me in terms of moving your career. These are either you want to call them career stage progressions, you want to call them career profiles. It's this notion of knowing what are the expectations of my current role and what's my path to the future. Kurt Delbeni, Assistant VA Secretary for IT and VA's Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher 
Education Administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about 
ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. 
Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.